Welcome to Building Sustainability, the podcast that brings you interviews with designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. I'm your host, Geoffrey Hart. Hello and welcome. This month's conversation is with Paul Allen. Paul is the project coordinator of Zero Carbon Britain, Rising to the Climate Emergency, which is a report that's been produced uh, by the Centre for Alternative Technology, or CAT for short. I'll read you just a short segment from the, the blurb. Zero Carbon Britain models a technologically robust endpoint where we have achieved net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Let's call this Zero Carbon. Our work clearly demonstrates that we already have the tools and technology needed to efficiently power the UK with 100% renewable energy, to feed ourselves sustainably and so to play our part in leaving a safe and habitable climate for our children and future generations. The report provides a blueprint to open new conversations around the scale and speed of change we need to deliver if we are to rise to the climate emergency. It can be used as a template to help citizens and local and national policymakers develop and deliver zero carbon action plans. So the report is broken down really into four sections, and that is looking at energy demand, so how much energy we actually use, the production of the energy that we use, land use, and then diet. Uh, and we're going to talk about all of those things with Paul here. Uh, we also start with a little intro to the Centre for Alternative Technology. But before that, a quick roundup of what's going on around here. This is currently the end of May in 2020. It is elderflower season. Uh, I have 24 litres of elderflower champagne currently uh, in demijohns around the boat. It's bubbling away so violently that I actually thought the boat was sinking yesterday when it woke me up in the middle of the night. If you are a forager or indeed a, a hedgerow winemaker, then uh, you will know the joy of uh, the elderflower season. In other news, I head back to work with the Bristol Wood Recycling Project on Monday. Uh, I'm really happy to have a bit of routine back in my life um, and to see the wonderful folk there. I'd say that uh, lockdown has been a uh, I guess a mixed bag. Certainly, I've had time to paint the canal boat I live on. Um, so, barefoot is now a wonderful shade of teal, um, and I don't really want to see a sander or a paintbrush for quite a while. It's a big and exhausting job. Um, another benefit of the lockdown has been that I've been able to focus a lot more time uh, on this podcast. I'm sure the regular listeners will have noticed that I've been pushing out episodes much quicker than uh, the usual once a month. And I want to keep that up. And for that, I'm asking for your help. I've set up a Patreon uh, membership so that you can support this podcast. Um, and if you want to, then uh, you can just pay a couple of quid a month. It'll help me pay for all of the costs which take to, to run this podcast. And if it goes well, then I'm hoping to ramp up and get you a more regular stream of conversations. As always, if this is your first time with us, hit the subscribe button and never miss a future episode. And do delve back into the archive. Uh, there's some excellent chats. I would particularly recommend this month uh, listening to the one with Kiko Denza. Kiko is a, an artist and he was the man who wrote the book on making earth ovens. So if you've ever had pizza out of a, a cob oven uh, quite a lot of people this will be their their gateway into into cob building into natural building you've you've pretty much got this man to uh, to thank so have a listen to that episode that's it for me i'll be back at the end enjoy this chat with paul allen hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I've worked at the Center for Alternative Technology since 1988 which seems like a fair while, but it was actually founded in 1973. Uh, our founder, Gerard Morgan Granville, was a, a businessman. He took a year out in 1970 and tra traveled across America. He came across the limits to growth movement. He realized that the trajectory that we were on as a society was going to hit limits to growth in a few decades' time. So he came back fired up and... He was asking some deep questions to the emerging Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace movement, and he realized a lot of them were actually rooted in real-life practical experience. So he, he actually employed somebody to go out and search around Britain for a site that nobody wanted so he could adopt it, really. And we adopted an old derelict slate quarry in 1973, opened to the public in 75, and straight away all sorts of interested people came grassroots active citizens, but also lots of academics, Dr. Bob Todd from the University of Southampton. And Cat was sort of born with the mission of reshaping the relationship between human beings and technology to make technology work better for the citizen, but within the limits of the planet. And then it's evolved and grown enormously over the time. And particularly now where lots of the issues that we were originally talking about are now very clear and much, much wider recognized that I think we're getting a lot of traction. Our focus now is on equipping and skilling up change makers. So we have a range of short courses that can allow citizens to get the skills they need to revitalize soil or build with natural materials. But we also have a huge range of master's courses run with a range of different universities, everything from behavior change to architecture. So people can make a a genuine switch in their career path and their life path and build their future around working in ways that just make sense to them in terms of the relationship with the natural world. Aha. Uh -huh. I've been to your, uh, your campus, I guess you call it. Uh, and it's a, a sort of, oh, it's almost like a natural building playground of uh, beautifully made things. Uh, what, what sort of things are, are, are up there and that people could, uh, could come and see? Well, we try to make it a very practical thing. So in the very early days, we took one of the most energy efficient houses that we actually got from the National Home Show and we built it and we lived in it and it was the core of the community. More recently, we've built the WISE building, Wales Institute for Sustainable Education, using timber frame, rammed earth, hemp and lime, to build an inspiring, inspirational learning space, but also using natural materials. But it's part of an experiment. Mm -hmm. We don't get everything right. The important thing is to learn from what you actually do and be honest about what does and doesn't work, because failure is actually the compost of success. We're yes. not pushing any failures under the carpet by going, well, we tried this, but it didn't work, so we're trying it this way now. And when we have the master's students up, sometimes we get up to 100 master's students on site in a week, they get absolutely filthy. They get PowerPoints, of course they get PowerPoints, but we get them filthy from head to toe, either moving soil or 
building a pizza oven using natural materials or building a section of a wall to test its strength with pulleys and weights. And by the end of it, when they come in, their eyes are twinkling, even though their clothes <laughs> are covered in mud, because they've actually touched real stuff and done real things. And that's part of it. So all over the site, there's all sorts of experiments that students have done, different types of buildings. There's little models to sort of test out whether this way of doing rammed earth works better than that way of doing rammed earth. Yeah. So it's a very interesting space. But also the nature has grown fabulously since it was a derelict slate quarry. Trees have grown back. All sorts of birds and different species have reoccupied it. So it's a beautiful place. It is one of my uh, my favourite places to, to be, actually. Well, the, the challenge for us was that the actual site itself is a good 400 metres above where you arrive from the car park or the bus or where you park your bike. And getting people up to the site was always proving difficult with people's elderly grandparents or anybody in a wheelchair. So we built a water-balanced cliff railway that uses the water flowing through the site to counterbalance the weight of the visitors, and it hauls them up on a, a cliff railway, which has proved very attractive because it's a very interesting experience. It is. So how does explain how that works? Well, each carriage, there's two carriages, they're connected by a, a big steel cable, but each carriage has a, a tank built into its base. And so as water in Wales is flowing through the site in any case, we use some of that water to counterbalance the weight of the visitors because both the carriages weigh the same. So the carriage with the visitors in is weighed through the stress of, uh, in, in the rope and then they work out how much water to put in the top carriage to make it heavier than the bottom carriage. So when the parking brake's released, gravity pulls the top carriage down, which pulls the visitors up to the site. That's, it's delightfully uh, simple and elegant. Uh, it's, uh, I've never actually come across another example of that. Is it a, a commonly used method? Uh, it's built upon something where slate waste was used to bring tools up onto the site. So it's, that counterbalancing thing is quite old, but I think there's nothing quite like it. Yeah, fantastic that it's uh, that it's it's keeping the heritage of the the slate, a, a formerly industrial process, now uh, uh, almost like a, a tourist uh, event. Yeah. Excellent. You've uh, been one of the authors uh, producing Zero Carbon Britain, Rising to the Climate Emergency. That, that's obviously a, a research paper. Um, is that is that something else that's going on at CAT? Well, I, I would say the, the origins of where we are today with the Zero Carbon Britain project can be traced right back to the origins of CAT because Gerard Morgan Grenville, the founder, had the vision that within the first five years we'd work out what does and doesn't work in the alternative technologies, assessing them, trialling them. And then we'd send a paper to government giving them some advice. And that's exactly what happened in 1977. A paper called An Alternative Energy Strategy for the UK was sent to government at the time. Now, back then, using more energy every year, more and more and faster and faster, was just the mindset in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So saying that we actually have to use energy more efficiently so we don't need as much energy was quite off the radar. But it did influence quite a lot of people at the time. Yeah. But then as we came past the year 2000, it became clear. We'd been sort of looking through all of the challenges that humanity faces and cla cas classifying them a bit like you'd classify species and identifying problems that, yeah, they're serious problems, but there's other problems that feed back on themselves and get worse if you don't do anything about them. Mm -hmm. So we identified climate as one of the key, back in the late 90s, that we really had to address. So we pulled together as many as we could find of the original 1977 team. We learned from them. And in 2007, we launched a, a report called Zero Carbon Britain, an alternative energy strategy for the UK in Parliament, at the All-Party Parliamentary Climate Change Group. And we began this process of modelling what an end point would be like, where we've actually done the changes that we need to do. Because doing that can help open new conversations, mm -hmm. can help us think about that world that we know we need to create. What would it be like? We've never intended it to be the one and only solution that can save the planet because we can get to net zero in a number of different ways, but we tried to pick an optimum one that would begin to link up the fundamental process of how we power down 
By that, I mean delivering society's goals effectively, but on less energy, by not wasting as much energy in the process. Okay. At the same time, powering up 100% clean renewables. Now, we've sort of got locked into an energy extreme lifestyle over the past sort of few decades. And the amount of energy we use is off the radar. I mean, we're still building houses that are nowhere near as energy efficient as they could be. We're hauling stuff around the world. Identical products are passing each other in the airwaves. And we're, we've sort of got a consumer mindset where buy more, eat more, travel more, spend more is the way to be happy. Hmm. So we need to sort of unpick a lot of that and work out what are the important goals for society. Warm houses, healthy diets, social interaction, secure employment. And we begin to think how we can power down the amount of energy we need to deliver that. Okay. Because we, it would be very, very hard to power an energy extreme lifestyle with 100% clean energy. Okay. But once we do that reduction, then at the same time, we come up with an achievable goal for clean energy sources. And we begin to think about food, diets, and land use as well, because it's not just about insulating lofts or building wind turbines. It's about rethinking our relationship with the land as well. Excellent. Okay, so before we, we sort of dig deeper into this uh, this report, I wanted to to ask you about the the need for this report. I wouldn't want to assume that everyone had the same uh, the same sort of understanding of of what we're we're facing as a, a species uh, if we if we don't uh, make changes. So I was wondering if you would uh, be able to talk a little bit about that. But it's been really clear from the scientific evidence that there are feedbacks within climate and beyond a certain point, you trigger feedback so the problem gets worse. Uh When we first launched the Zero Carbon Britain report, we talked frankly and openly to climate scientists who were saying, well, we need to be as ambitious as possible. But the official government target at the time was 60% reduction by 2050, the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution's report. Then that was up to 80% by 2050, and now we're on a 100% reduction by 2050. So the, the actual target that government's working to has moved significantly in the duration of our project. But still, zero by 2050 is, is not ambitious enough. It was very interesting that the, the retired chief scientist, Sir David King, came out to the BBC and said, We need to be open and frank about the science. The amount of extreme weather events in our model doesn't correlate with the amount of extreme weather events we're getting for this degree of warming. We need to increase our ambition and get to net zero by 2040. Mm -hmm. And I remember personally here in February, we had unprecedented amounts of flooding. It was flooding every weekend. The flooding in Shropshire was beyond what they'd experienced before. So I, I had to wade out of my uh, my marina. I had to take my trousers off and wade out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a lot so people things. see it. They see it in their own backyard. Yeah. We can see the effects. And if we don't do anything that actually rises to that challenge, because doing too little too late is actually failing. We have to do what's necessary in time. So I would say I take Sir David King's advice because he's now free to say what he really, really believes because he's retired. And we should aim for net zero by 2040 to try and avoid passing on to future generations a world just totally embroiled in extreme weather events. Yeah. So you said uh, 2040. So we've got 20 years. That's it seems like uh, there's a lot to change in 20 years. Yes, because we haven't been working fast enough for the past 20 years. Right. If we'd set off in 1990 or even in 2000 towards net zero, it would have been a much easier path. Yeah. One of the things I think we've learned from the past few months looking at the pandemic is that if we don't act fast enough for a physical emergency... No amount of talking makes it go away. Mm. Talking, of course, is important, but we can't politically talk it away. It's the reality that we face. If we don't act fast on climate, we can end up the next generation looking back on us going, why didn't you do that? Yeah. Yeah, it seems like all of the 
all of the science is is saying that we well are so shouting that that this is uh desperate uh, and we need to be acting uh but doesn't seem like a lot of the the action is uh, is sort of following that no but we're at a unique point in human history today where we we're beginning to plan out an economic reboot because of the lock-in the lockdown mm. all of the pandemic if if we make that reboot actually accelerate us towards the net zero target we can solve two problems with the same investment if we use that reboot to get us back to fossil fueled energy extreme business as usual we've missed that opportunity mm-hmm. particularly the uk who's going to head up the next cop cop 26 even though it's been delayed if we make a a really innovative economic stimulus package that looks at the um the clean technologies that are shovel ready, they're ready to go. Let's deploy them at scale, en masse. We can create huge amounts of work at grassroots level. And we can stimulate the global debate about climate by being a leader, by being a genuine leader, which is something Britain likes to think of itself as in terms of technology and culture. It certainly does, yeah. So let's do it. <laughs> uh, so um, you described this as a, um, a wicked problem. What does, what does that mean? Well, there's a couple of design theorists, uh, Horst Bittler and a couple of others, came up with the concept of wicked problems. If you're going to, I'm an electrical engineer. I studied in Liverpool University. I know how to understand very complex electrical failure problems, mm-hmm. where it might be that if you take all of the system apart and test every single bit, they all work. But the problem is, if you connect them all together, because there's some point where they don't all function collectively the system seems to fail but you can't actually find the fault the fault's in the interaction not in the components Uh so i understand classifying problems and helping get to the roots of problems and basically a wicked problem is a problem where there's no single solution it's a problem that's deeply entwined into the system within which it exists and it's a problem that feeds back on itself and gets worse the longer you leave it Uh So as soon as I, you know, I, I recognise that climate change is a wicked problem, if we don't do enough and ice melts, ice will reflect about 90% of the sun's heat. If the ice melts and it's open water, the open water absorbs about 90% of the sun's heat. So the, the less ice we have, the faster the earth warms. The faster the earth warms, the less ice we have. The less ice we have, the more release of methane we might see the more release of methane we see which is a very powerful greenhouse gas the faster the ice might melt so it's got the feedbacks within the system uh-huh. but it's also deeply deeply entwined into our infrastructure and our culture if we think back over the past century century and a half when we discovered fossil fuels we'd been living basically in settled agricultural communities for about twelve thousand years And our access to energy was through soil. Through soil, we would grow energy crops like trees that we could burn. Suddenly, we had access to energy whenever we wanted it, wherever we wanted it, in whatever quantities we could afford. And that was transformative for humans. But it it led us then to be doing industrial manufacturing, factories of Henry Ford's production of Ford Model T, we began to produce things faster and faster than we'd ever done before. So that led us into some very strange situations where actually everybody had a bath, a bucket, a coat, a suit. Nobody wanted another one. So then we began designing things deliberately to break. It began with the Phoebus cartel, halving the life of light bulbs in the 1920s, deliberately designing them with a shorter life. And now everything from a fridge to a car to a phone actually has its life expectancy built into it it's not designed to last as long as it possibly can it's designed to break because that benefits the business model but similarly we built thousands of houses miles from anywhere in housing estates where if we'd asked the victorians to build them they'd have built them in clusters around where we work around the schools we've been building houses that are nowhere near the maximum energy efficiency so they're losing energy to the atmosphere from the heat escaping People are having to drive home because the houses aren't built around public transport systems. 
So we've designed this physical infrastructure that uses far more energy than we actually need if that had been in the design considerations from the beginning. But it's also culturally. We've, we associate burning fossil fuels, revving a car engine, having a big car as a sign of success, a sign of virility, a sign of being attractive to the opposite sex. And that's been reinforced to endless movies. Basically, if you want to overcome evil, if you've got the faster car and there's a car chase, you can overcome villains because your car can outrun their car. Uh-huh. So we have to look culturally and physically at our infrastructure, psychological infrastructure, buildings, transport, all our other infrastructures, and recognize that we have to rethink them. So we're getting to the roots of what a wicked problem is. Yes. And what what's, it really interests me is then... If you explore and thoroughly understand what a wicked problem is with feedbacks, with cultural lock-ins, with no single solution, it leads you to think, well, what's a wicked solution that can actually deliver on this? And fortunately, humans' response has developed some wicked solutions. If we look at the scale of the deployment of solar PV or wind, and we look at the cost per watt-hour, It's dropped drastically over time. The cheaper it gets, the more viable it is in more applications, so that the more it scales up. The more it scales up, the more they invest in manufacturing efficiency, so the cheaper it gets. And that sort of economies of scale has really brought the price down. So that's one feedback. And there's all sorts of other environmental solutions that we're looking at around that too, that they scale up, they get cheaper, they become competitive with the existing system, and they disrupt it. But we've also got to recognize the existing system isn't paying the full price. If we look at burning fossil fuels, there are huge amounts of hidden subsidies, but there are also health costs. Burning fossil fuels, particularly in urban environments, causes air pollution, which causes health costs and human life costs. So we have to build that in, but also... If we burn fossil fuels, there are future adaptation costs that the next generation or even this generation will have to pay to adapt to those impacts from climate change. And we don't cost that in. So if we have full cost accounting, we can see how many of the technologies we want to use in the solutions are getting cheaper and cheaper and it's feeding back, which is very exciting. Hmm. But I think there, there are even more exciting, wicked feedbacks. What I've been following is the number of councils that have declared a climate emergency and are starting to make action plan. It's this new leadership starting to emerge at civic level. And that's, over the past year, has fed back enormously to well over half the councils. I think there's even more than that now have declared a climate emergency and are making action plans. So that sort of feeds back on itself. But also, I think it's a a cultural awareness beyond councils. It's the youth climate, Fridays for the Future strikes. It's the retired vets who go out and lock themselves down as a climate protest because they just know we have to do it and they know government isn't doing it fast enough. And that's fed back on itself in the past 18 months. I mean, if we weren't in lockdown now, there'd be people out there locking themselves to things. Yeah. So it, it hasn't gone away, but people who do that sort of protest are respectful of the lockdown and a lot of people are skilling up at the moment. So there are all sorts of feedbacks going on, but I think the most exciting wicked solution is what I call multi-solving. That if we make a shift for climate reasons, for example, we build cycle routes, we invest in a cycle route so people can cycle safely to work instead of having to drive, then that can reduce emissions. But It has multi-solving benefits. It also reduces air pollution. It also gets people out so they're fitter and healthier. It also gets people more connected to each other because they see each other cycling. So if we begin to map out and use a multi-solving lens, the changes we need to make that can solve the climate problems can actually solve a range of other problems at the same time. So we need the wicked solutions to balance the wicked problems. Uh, I wanted to ask about sort of what the the current strategies that are being uh, introduced. I was quite surprised actually to read within the report that uh, the net UK greenhouse gas emissions are actually falling year on year, if I was reading that correctly, of course. And so, yeah, I was wondering what what you think of current, the the sort of current 
solutions or strategies and 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 where they're leading us well in order to understand the current solution and the current strategy i think we really have to see it we're going to kickstart the economy from a lock-in we need to see the government's plan for how we can kickstart the economy we can restore jobs and how we can actually achieve the necessary climate shift as well Mm -hmm. in terms of emissions reduction. And that isn't really transparent at the moment. Uh, We have the existing UK Climate Change Act, but it's looking decidedly like it's very worth following the Committee on Climate Change. They're an independent body led by Lord de Ben that are scrutinising the government's performance against its own legal obligations. And it's looking very, very tight that we'll even meet the existing targets that we have, despite the call from Sir David King that the the timeline for those targets is actually too slow. Yeah. So we need to see a, in the run-up to COP26, a huge reboot the future, zero carbon Britain, COVID recovery plan. Okay. Do do you think that, um, it's interesting, I think that you mentioned the economy, yeah, restarting the economy. Uh, because I've certainly heard it said that if we're a f- growth-focused e- economy, you know, if if we're always focusing on growth, then how on earth can we uh, on economic growth? That is, how can we? You know, it goes it goes against what we need to do to fight climate change. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat Show. That's right. And I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at The Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. I think we recognise that the economy is a complicated system. And in order to understand it, we have to have things that we measure. Mm -hmm. And if what we're actually measuring is called gross domestic product, GDP, and for example, in Shropshire after the big floods, GDP would go up because people are busy rebuilding bridges and building river protection walls and it isn't actually helping anybody, we're just responding to a crisis, then GDP isn't an accurate measure of our health, happiness, and well-being. We need to look for other measures that actually measure society's goals and measure the health and happiness of not just human systems, but natural systems as well, and then use those as the, the measure. I think one of the most interesting ways of getting this across simply without losing people in complicated economic language, which I think is framed to sound like science when it isn't actually science, Mm -hmm. is a concept called donut economics. Kate Raworth's got an excellent book with some really smart, short animations that says the economy is like a donut. There's the, the inner circle, which is the sort of baseline of what we need to ensure that we have basic needs met in society. The outer circle is the physical limits of the planet. So we have to provide for our needs within the physical limits of the planet. And using that metaphor, she then looks at how we can begin to think about the economy differently. And there needs to be some growth in clean technologies or growth in systems that support natural regeneration, restorative agriculture, but there needs to be contractions in other areas. But there can't be perpetual growth of everything forever on a finite world. I think that's absolutely obvious. So there's got to be some contractions and some growth and economic transition happening. But I'd well recommend Donut Economics as a good way of understanding this. Yes, I I've understand that uh, Amsterdam are are changing the way they uh, they run their, their city uh, to be with using the Donut Economic model. Yes, that's where it gets really interesting when people start applying it to real life situations and evaluating what works and what doesn't. Yeah. And we, we only learn by doing and being honest about what succeeds and what fails and not just trying to be a, a car showroom for super green donut economics, but saying this is a real life trial. Let's learn what, what is and isn't working, what's confusing. Where do we need more research? Mm. 
but good on Amsterdam, yeah. Let's have Manchester, Bristol. Can we have those? Can we make donut economics as the the driving economic model we use for rebooting the economy? That, that would be a wonderful thing. There's no reason why we can't do it. We just have to convince our, the politicians and the elected leaders that it's what we want. Very much so. So what does net zero or zero carbon, what does it actually mean? Well, net means the positive and the negatives balance. So if you if you have to get to zero emissions so that the emissions aren't continuing to build up and get 420, 450, 480 parts per million, you have to get to zero. You find that actually delivering society's goals, like providing food or industrial manufacturing process, you can't actually get those down to absolute zero. There's still some residual emissions from from those sectors. But what you can do is recognise that the natural systems do capture carbon. That's that's how fossil fuels formed. And if we revitalise natural systems, then we can have the multi-solving benefit of enhancing nature, but also balancing out the residual emissions you can't manage to finally get rid of. But the important thing is to draw a difference between that and just saying, yes, we'll deploy all of these fanciful electric trees in 2040 so we can carry on with business as usual, which is using fanciful future technology, unproven at scale, unproven at cost, to justify doing too little now. We have to do all we can now, as rapidly as possible, but recognise that we need to revitalise natural carbon capture systems to bring us into balance. And the sorts of things we explore in the scenario around that is revitalising peat bogs. Mm -hmm. If we re-wet 50% of the peat bogs that have been drained in Britain, they can then become carbon capturing things. Or if we double the forest cover of the UK, double it from 12% to 24%, that's still below the European average. We can capture carbon as those trees grow, but we can also then use those trees in buildings so that the carbon's held, and we can create more space for nature Mm -hmm. and more space for human beings to be involved with woodland, where there's all sorts of economic benefits. So it's those sorts of conversations we want to start with the report to show that there is other options rather than relying on huge amounts of nuclear-powered electric trees planted in 2040 or whatever might be suggested to offset... The, not doing enough now okay and that's that's really uh, sort of at the 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 core of the uh, report or the thinking is is that using uh the existing technologies so not not having that sort of hope that one day something's going to be invented that will save us yeah i think it's important to have the concept in an emergency and we are in a climate emergency the solutions we need to deploy at scale need to be shovel ready they need to be ready yeah. to go we've got to start doing And if we look at offshore wind, offshore wind is ready to roll. Restorative agriculture is ready to go. You've talked about energy um, and the need to to scale down the demands um, and then scale up the the good energy production. What's the sort of current demand looking like uh, in terms of, you know, what's the sort of uh, percentages of... Now, I haven't memorised the report all in my head. That's all there in the report for you to delve into. But basically, it breaks down the amount of energy we use into the energy we use to heat buildings, the energy we use for all the appliances like projectors and computers that happen in buildings, the amount of energy we use for industry, to power industry, and the amount of energy we use to move ourselves and move stuff around. Uh And in this scenario, the amount of energy we give to industry actually goes up because we're going to be really busy. We've got to retrofit 20 million buildings in 20 years. We've got to build lots of new renewable sources. But if we can shift to a greener approach and a more efficient approach to industrial process, mm-hmm. and there's lots of uh, work going on, and it, it, you, know, you can see it at scale, of looking at using the surplus electricity from renewables to manufacture steel so you don't have to use coking coal. You can use surplus renewables because when you've got 
high amount of renewables in the grid, you've got huge amounts of peaks as well that you need to use, which provides lots of really cheap energy that's just got to be got rid of. So this is this is when uh, you know it's a big sunshine day and there's lots of excess solar. Is that what you're you're saying there? Or it's two o'clock in the morning, everybody in Britain's asleep, and the offshore wind farms are howling with a huge amount of energy. Right. You can then offer that on a contract to an industrial process, aluminium, steel that they can then get that energy at a really good price for their industrial process, but it's at mm-hmm. particular times. Now, it doesn't just happen randomly. Predicting what the wind's going to do a fortnight ahead is really difficult to do, but predicting the wind six hours ahead is really accurate. Predicting the wind one hour ahead is pretty damn certain. Mm-hmm. So you can identify when the peaks are coming and get the industrial process geared up to use that surplus energy. Uh-huh. But we also need to recognise we have to explore ways of doing it without building in designer obsolescence. We don't need to build wind turbines or solar panels that deliberately break. We need to design things that will last as long as they can and that the materials are as recyclable as possible at the end of it. We need to explore reducing dependence on rare earth oxides pulled out from other parts of the world and looks at ways of building clean green renewables, clean green solar panels, clean green insulation materials. Mm -hmm. For example, with insulating buildings, we look very much at using natural materials rather than artificial materials to retrofit buildings. And having natural materials in your living space is actually better. So that's the sort of thing we're thinking about, about greening up the industrial process. Mm -hmm. But then transport, we can make huge amounts of reductions because Basically, a fossil fuel-powered car is only about 20% efficient. Most of the energy is lost as heat. And so many cars only have one person in them. If we can rethink the transport systems and get them working for the benefit of the citizens and connect them to when people need to travel, and that might need rethinking the scheduling of the tube system in London if we're going to have social or physical distancing Mm -hmm. from people. But I mean, it's it's all possible. It's all doable. It's all there, rather than everybody driving in individual cars. But the other exciting thing is getting more safe cycle routes working in towns and cities, so that people can, because people like cycling. It's just a matter of cycling through traffic is horrible. Cycling down a safe cycle route is a nice, relaxing way of getting to work and back. So it's it's refitting the transport system to make it work by traveling less and traveling differently. In our scenario, and I I will keep reminding you of this point, that our scenario is not meant to be the only way to solve this problem. It's one possible solution to open conversations. And we've got a a big research symbol that appears regularly through the port where we think there are several different options here, and this is where we flag up that more research is needed. Uh So if we can begin to flag up those sort of areas of research, but begin to think about how we can travel less and travel differently. In the scenario, it's a 13% reduction in the amount of travel that people do. We could redesign a, a scenario based around a 7% or a 25%. Uh-huh. We can begin to tweak it. But the important thing is to recognize that through this work, we have all the tools and technologies shovel ready to go. We know we can do it, and we can identify lots of multi-solving benefits. Yeah. So that's a sort of breakdown of how we use energy it's basically heating buildings, appliances in building, industry, and transport. Okay. And I have a quick question on the, the transport. Um, it seems like there's a big push uh, for electric cars. And I imagine you know, the thought is that people would use them in exactly the same way that they're using a car now. So maybe only single occupancy driving as much as they, they've always done. Um, is does that provide a, a decent solution? Well, that's not our suggestion. I don't know who you got that suggestion. <laughs> no, no, I do. It wasn't a, it, not not your uh, not your suggestion. In our suggestion, we travel less, a little bit less, thirteen percent less, and we travel differently with a big switch to cycling and public transport. But there is still space for individual vehicles. But mm-hmm. if we're having electric cars, let's build an electric car that's built to last. Let's build one, build one that uses the minimum amount of rare earth elements and designed so that those rare earth elements can be recycled. But it's also possible that we can have cars 
that you don't actually own, that you can just, almost like the bicycle racks, yeah. where if you need a car, you just book one, and either somebody drops off at your house or you pick it up. So you don't actually own it. So the whole point of designing it to break disappears. You design it to last. So new ownership models, light, smart electric vehicles, it's not about having a huge, big, powerful, throbbing engine anymore. Mm -hmm. It's about getting around in the most effective, sensible ways. So I don't think we're trying to say electric vehicles will be just like your sort of Triumph, Dolomite, open back sort of... uh, (laughs) status symbol, phallic symbol, or whatever. It's not going to be like that. We have to let that sort of thing go. But we can do individual personal transport in a smart, efficient way. Energy, so we've talked about energy need. Um, what, what about production? Um, how, would, how would that, or how could that be changed? Well, firstly, we have to sort of sit down with uh, the geologists and and the metrologists and look at what energy hits Britain from all the different types of renewables throughout the season. And if we were doing zero carbon Morocco, it would be a very different energy generation mix to what we use in Britain. Mm -hmm. Because in Britain, we've got huge amounts of offshore wind. One of the best, like the Saudi Arabia of offshore wind in many ways. But then you could put all of the turbines up in the north of Scotland, where most of the wind is. We explored this with the model. But you recognise then you get lots of peaks and lots of troughs. So we found out spreading them north-south and east-west, particularly taking over shallow areas like the Dogger Bank, where you've got shallow water and good wind, Mm. you can then plot out the optimum use that minimises the installed capacity, maximises the delivered energy, minimizes the peaks and the troughs. And the only way to understand it really is to do hourly modeling. So we employed some expert modelers. We took 10 years of real weather data, hour by hour by hour, 87,000 hours. Wow. And then used that to identify the peaks and the troughs, to work out how big the peaks were, when the troughs were. And then we categorized and explored all of the different energy storage technologies that already exist that you can go and see up to a megawatt scale and obviously we've got batteries and batteries are are fine for short-term storage but if you're looking at britain it's say like the 2010 weather data set where we had it's like minus 15 it's the middle of the winter the days are very short the wind hasn't blown for five days how do we keep the lights on in the hospitals Mm -hmm. So we identify ways where we can actually store very large amounts of energy that we can deploy, particularly during those difficult periods. So basically, when you have huge peaks, what we do is we export half of it. The other half of it, you use the electricity to make hydrogen from water. It's called electrolysis. I remember doing it in my O-level chemistry. You put a positive and a negative into a big vat of pure water, and you get hydrogen out at one side. Uh And then we thought, well, we'll use the hydrogen as the energy store. But when we actually looked at the practicalities of that, you can put a little bit more hydrogen in the existing gas grid, but you can't run the existing gas grid on 100% hydrogen. You can't put 100% hydrogen in the existing combined cycle gas turbines that power the electricity grid. So what we found is that, yeah, you can use hydrogen for some things, but if you want to use it as your main energy store, you've got to rebuild huge amounts of infrastructure. So then we looked at, well, what's other alternatives? And we found that you can actually use leaves or sewage systems or waste to capture carbon dioxide out the atmosphere and then add that to the hydrogen. H2 plus CO2 gives you CH4, gives you synthetic methane. Okay. But it's not methane from fossil fuels that's been buried deep in the ground. It's methane made from surplus renewables with the carbon added that's been captured out the atmosphere now, so when you release it back into the atmosphere, it's carbon neutral. Fantastic. Well, the next step was to say, does that actually meet our goals of a proven existing technology? So we explored real-life examples. There's a fabulous project called Store and Go across the EU, 27 partners in six countries. They've got this sort of power to gas, they call it, where the surplus power is made into gas that you can then store and then 
we'd probably have to double or maybe even triple the existing gas storage infrastructure in the UK. But that's not a horrendously huge task. Mm. The exciting thing is we turn to the gas industry and we go, you're part of the solution. You're not the problem. It's just a different type of gas. We go to the people who operate the big combined cycle gas power stations that power the electricity grid. We go, you're part of the solution. But the gas you use is chemically exactly the same. It's just made in a different way. It's not fossil fuels. It's surplus renewables that's been upgraded. We can even make synthetic liquid fuels, synthetic diesel, essentially, or even synthetic aviation fuel for some air flights. We couldn't possibly make enough that everybody can pop over to New York for a hen party or a stag party, but you can make enough that there could still be some international air flight in a carbon-neutral way Mm -hmm. because with the right installed capacity, dealing with the peaks is every bit as big a problem as dealing with the troughs. If it's our job to run the electricity grid, you have to keep the voltage and the frequency stable, which means not pumping too much energy in, not pumping more energy in than people are using. Yeah. So you have to find ways of capturing that surplus energy. And it's a really exciting field. And there's, there's huge potential for growth. There's lots of really, really exciting big projects to show that it, this is another technology that's, Small shovel ready, it just needs to be scaled up to big shovels to be ready to deploy it quickly. But it's, it's, it's physically proven up to megawatt scale. And then lots of short-term storage as well, like the Norweg pump storage, battery storage, all of those for balancing the sort of hour-by-hour, day-by-day. But then for, for, the, for the big storage, it's power to gas, I think. Yeah. Uh, I've noticed you didn't mention uh, nuclear in your... And you talk about energy. Um, do you consider that to be a, a green energy source? Well, in terms of its fossil fuel emissions, it's very low. Mm. But if you're looking at the price at which renewables have dropped is staggering. And the price at which nuclear has dropped is, oh, it actually seems to have gone up in cost, particularly with you know, lots of drone weaponry and security costs. But I think the big reason is if you've got very large peaks, you need the backup to be able to be turned off, say, within a couple of hours. Mm. It takes you two weeks to turn a nuclear power station off, so they make the peaks even higher. Right. It doesn't settle well with a high renewable grid because you need flexible, adaptive backup. You can switch on within, say, two hours and switch off within two hours to fill the gaps between the big renewables. But also, I think, with more extreme weather events and lots of nuclear stations on the coast, it's, it seems like a funny choice to me. So I want to talk about uh, land use and diet in your scenario and, um, and what's, what's being proposed or suggested with, uh, with those. Yeah. One of the things that we think is most important with the Zero Carbon Britain work is to bring together experts in all of the different fields that need to interrelate. And there's plenty of interesting work looking at building retrofit. There's plenty of interesting work looking at potential for clean energy technologies or transport systems. But unless we actually bring that into the same model and the same scenario as thinking about food diets and land use food diets and land use at the moment is about 10 percent of uk emissions so we don't say that we've got the perfect solution that will solve everything but we're saying if we bring in those expertise and those issues into the scenario we can then begin to see what percentage effect they have we can identify co-benefits between transport and land use and diet so what we did is we employed a professional dietitian, uh, Laura Blake. She helped the team understand the diet that we eat at the moment isn't the healthiest optimum diet for human beings. We're actually eating far too much high fats and sugar foods. We're not eating enough fruit and veg. We're physically eating too much. We're importing 42% of the food we eat from other countries, and we're wasting about 30% of all our food in the process either at farm, at supermarket, or at home. So rather than to say, yes, we can get to zero, but everybody has to become vegan, I mean, that would in some ways make it easier, but in some ways it would make it a lot harder because some people aren't drawn to veganism. They want to eat some meat. 
And we have people in the agricultural sectors who produce meat products. So we began to think, well, what's the optimum diet where we can have the right amount of the different types of food that the Eat Well plate recommends human beings eat to be happy and healthy? And by doing that, we can rethink the land use in the UK. So we mapped out all of, as you'll see in the report, all of the land use in the UK in one mega hectare blocks, and we coloured them according to how they were being used. We found about 80% of all agricultural land was used to grow grass for animals, to feed the animals, to eat the animals, or milk the animals. About half of all of the cropland that isn't grazing land, that's actually agricultural cropland, was used to grow crops, to feed animals, to eat the animals. And yet we're eating too much high fats. So if we bring the amount of red meat, the amount of sheep that we eat down to the optimum amount for a healthy, happy human diet, we can actually free up some land for carbon capture processes. But we can also free up land for capturing carbon, firstly, to uh, add to the renewable surplus hydrogen to make synthetic methane, synthetic liquid fuels. But we can also capture carbon by revitalizing peat bogs by doubling forest cover. So we've done this agricultural food and diet scenario as a provocation to get the experts thinking. Mm -hmm. And we did that first report. I think People, Plate and Planet came out about almost eight years ago now. But more recently, it's exciting to see the Eat Lancet report, Food from the Anthropocene, Tim Lang's work, very much on the same page as what we are. If we can just rethink our diets to a healthy diet, we can free up land, we can reduce food imports, and we can actually capture carbon. Great. I was, I was surprised to, to learn that uh, methane and nitrous oxide are much more powerful greenhouse gases than, than CO2. So actually, the, the, the gases coming from, from say, cows is... is uh, so yeah, more destructive than, than maybe what's coming out of your, your car exhaust. Yes, but we've also got to recognise methane has a half-life. Mm. So it actually isn't stable. It decays down to carbon dioxide. But if we're constantly kicking it out, then the levels in the atmosphere stay high of a very, very potent gas. But if we can rethink agriculture so we're reducing the amount of methane emissions because the existing methane also has a half-life. That's an added benefit. Uh, so so what, can, um, what can people do to sort of push forward this, uh, this solution or, or a, you know, a solution similar to this? Well, I think if we think of what people can do, the one thing we shouldn't do is put all the burden on individuals. Mm-hmm. Give you your 10 top changes you have to make to save the planet with a worried-looking polar bear on the leaflet. What we have to do is recognise it's a mixture of individual change, but we also need systemic change. The way we think about systems, the way we do systems, the way we evaluate externalities of burning fossil fuels or whatever. So we need subsidies, economic systems to change, and that can support individual change. So I sort of think about it as the four directions. It might be an individual family called the... uh, the Lewingtons that live in Telford, or it might be a council in Machantleth, or it might be a business. You've got four directions. You can think of the things directly that you have control over, what you purchase as a family. Or the council might be procuring food for schools or hospitals. Mm-hmm. Think about the things you have direct control over and then begin to make plans to shift to a greener way of doing it, to a, a zero-carbon way of doing it. Some things you don't have control over, but you you can actually learn a lot by sharing your good ideas of what you're doing with compost or capturing seeds. Or There's a fabulous thing called the Green Open Homes Project where people who've super-insulated their houses and retrofitted, they open it to tea so that hundreds, I think 10,000 people have been through 600 homes to see what it actually looks like to live in a retrofitted home. So you can share ideas sideways, the good stuff you've got, share it with your neighbours. Or if you've got a difficult question, ask your neighbours, does anybody know how you such and such or do such and such? And then within your own hive mind, you begin to create learning patterns. The third direction 
is upwards. You've got to think about the things that you don't have direct control over and lobby. Government or a district council might lobby a county council or a county council might lobby government saying, we don't want an airport expansion or we need resources to invest in a cycle route. So you, you control over what you've got, action downwards, lobbying upwards, working sideways. But finally, the fourth direction is to work inwards, is to learn, is to get new skills, new experience. And if it's a council, train the council leader and everybody else the basic skills. If you're managing a hospital, you're particularly busy at the moment, but when you're thinking about normal in a hospital, if you don't have the basic skills to understand how to think differently about the choices you make, then it's hard to make them. So we reskill ourselves, we skill the hospitals, we skill the schools, we skill the councils, so that everybody feels empowered to make decisions differently. Well, I think it's very important that we don't let it all be burdened on the individuals, that we see that it's systemic shift in working in harmony with individual change. And I think that results in the wicked solutions. Yeah, It becomes a wicked solution in itself because it's a culture shift. And I've seen culture shifts in my life. I've seen when I grew up, there were stand-up comedians on the televisions that were telling jokes that you simply couldn't, I wouldn't repeat now because they're just, what should we say, old school? Yeah, We've seen cultural shifts about race, class, and gender. We're in the midst of a cultural shift about climate and emissions. And that, when you get a culture shift, it doesn't happen linearly. You reach a tipping point and it flips. You press a sensitive intervention point and the theory of change triggers. And suddenly, like when Kathy Come Home was broadcast, Ken Lurch's play, suddenly people thought differently about homelessness. It wasn't that they were lazy or bad people. It was just people like us that have had some misfortune. So we're at that tipping point now with climate. Admittedly, we've got other problems on our hands at the moment as well, but I think we can learn important lessons from COVID. And probably the most important lesson I think a lot of people have picked up is if we get ourselves into an emergency, no amount of talking makes it go away. What we actually have to do is head off the emergency well in advance. And so we need to do that with climate. Excellent. Paul, that was brilliant. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd want to want to say? Just I would all, I'd like to end by inviting any of your listeners to come and get involved with CAT, come on a short course, become a CAT member, come and have a career-changing master's course, which we're still delivering them online. We're delivering lots of short courses online, but soon we'll have the CAT open again and people can come and get physically engaged. Come and learn the skills. And the primary learning outcomes is you go away with all the skills you need. The secondary learning outcome is on that path, you've met a lot of other people who've been on a learning path. For example, you know, I can see a whole lot of plumbers or electricians who come to learn particular skills to be HETAS qualified or what have you. They all enjoy seeing other people on the same path and they realise it's a path that many of us are travelling to get the skills we need to be change makers. So, cat.org.uk, come join us. It's fun. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Paul. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Thank you so much to Paul Allen. 
Uh, I really enjoyed meeting him. Uh, he was a very entertaining person to talk to. So do get yourself down to CAP when you're allowed. Uh, get involved with the great things they're doing. Do check out uh, the show notes for links to the things we've talked about in this podcast. Do subscribe and check out the uh, previous episodes. And do click on the Patreon link if you'd like to support the podcast. That's it from me. Until next time, see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.